0: We're going to be reading of the incredible eternal blessings that God has in store for us from Revelation 21, 18 through 27. <clears throat> the material of her wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation had jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was composed of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no sanctuary in her, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are her sanctuary. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon, that they should shine on her, because the very glory of God illumines her, and the Lamb is her light, and the nations will walk in her light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into her. Her gates will absolutely not be closed by day, and no night will exist there, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into her, but anything common or anyone perpetuating an abomination or a lie will absolutely not enter her, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is inerrant. It is a guide for our lives, and I pray that by your grace you would do a powerful work in our hearts to appreciate the glories that you have for us for all of eternity. Blessed be your name forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably the most exciting day in my life was the day I got married. There are some people who quake in their boots on wedding day wondering what have I gotten myself into? I didn't at all. I enjoyed the whole day thoroughly, absolutely thoroughly. And what the apostle John has been doing is he has been taking this that for most couples is a glorious day and he is using the imagery of the wedding Uh, to illustrate uh, God's relationship uh, to us and what the new Jerusalem is like. It's images of a wedding. He likens the time we saw before from AD 70 to the last day of history to the wedding feasting that went on before the day of consummation. And then this new Jerusalem descending out of heaven Uh, as a bride adorned for her husband is uh, likened to the day of consummation. But the more we dig into the New Jerusalem, the more we realize these are snapshots and images that are trying to convey something that the Apostle Paul said is impossible to put into words. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it even entered into the imagination of a man, the things that God has prepared for us. They are so glorious. Now let me quickly review what we have discovered so far. We've seen that chapter 21 takes place on the first day of eternity but that it is looking back at what Jesus has already accomplished over the previous thousands of years. And uh, so we are going to see features of the city that look like that they really relate to history because it was built in history. We're not waiting for the New Jerusalem to be built. It was built uh, in the first century. So The moment we die, we enter into the new Jerusalem. Okay, there's many scriptures that talk about that. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11. And even though we have not yet arrived at the time when heaven will be merged with earth, the new Jerusalem will come down to earth, it is just as glorious a reality that we are entering into when we die today. And I tried to demonstrate The city was both a symbol and a literal city that houses people. Now it is called the bride because it's 100% composed of elect, right? There are no non-elect in that city, so it is the bride that, uh, that lives there. And yet it also houses the elect. And I've listed in your outline some of the key verses on that. We'll see in verse 18 that this city is constructed out of materials, but the materials are selected in such a way that they form a perfect symbol of the eternal state of the church of Jesus Christ. Next, though the actual city began to be constructed shortly after the resurrection of Christ. Remember he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, he's going to be taking and and making a place for those who were resurrected with him and uh, later in the first century. But it continued to be constructed all the way up to AD 70. Now, Galatians 4.26 is one of several scriptures that talks about the New Jerusalem being in existence in the first century. It says, the Jerusalem which is above is the mother of us all. So it's already in existence. So it makes sense that some of the features of this city imply the presence of sin and opposition and warfare, such as gates and walls. Why do you need gates if there are no enemies, right? And walls when there are no enemies. Why do you need healing? It talks about in the next chapter, for the healing of the nations. And uh, so it, it's looking back on a city that's already been constructed, and it's saying it comes down on the first day of eternity, but there are features that relate um, to history. Those gates and walls would no longer be needed. We also saw in verse 11 that the city is filled with the glory of God himself. Now this is really astounding. I spent a fair bit of time on that phrase in verse 11. The glory that is described as radiating from this bride is exactly the same glory that radiates from God sitting on His throne in chapter 4. Now it radiates from the bride because God is in the midst of her uh, uh, and and not only in her midst, but He clothes her. He's above, He's underneath, He's uh, all around her. And uh, the Apostle Paul said, this divine glory of God that we're going to be experiencing is so incredibly awesome that he testifies, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's Romans 8, verse 18. And the word revealed means it's coming from God to us, right? It's shown to us, it's given to us. Next, we saw that this is a glorified city. Now, you might think that's saying exactly the same thing as the previous point. It's not. We saw that the materials that this city was made up of are not quite the same as the same material named on this earth. For example, the jasper uh, doesn't look like the jasper that's on earth. In some ways it does, but in other ways it's different. It's clear as crystal. Jasper on earth is opaque. It is not... Uh, clear as crystal. Likewise, verse 18 says, the gold of that city will be transparent, and it used the word um, uh, huello from huallas, meaning to be see-through. Some people say it's transparent, others say it's translucent, but there's some uh, seeing through, but there's an even stronger word used in verse 21, diauges, which clearly means transparent, like glass. You can see Right through it. Well, that is not like any gold that we have in this unglorified world that we live in right now. So, this is glorified gold, it's heavenly gold. So, just as the resurrected bodies have glorified properties like Christ did, glorified stones, glorified materials in the new heavens are not subject to decay. Or deterioration like the materials that we're used to are these are materials that are designed to last forever and ever and ever now the gates and the walls show that she was a safe city even when evil was around she was completely safe but obviously it continues to be safe for eternity the 12 gates of those cities show that it's an accessible city doesn't matter which angle you come to that city from there's gates that you can get in through it 12 gates in all and this symbolizes the welcome of the gospel that's given in the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 17, where it says, Both the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let whoever hears say, Come. And let whoever thirsts come. Whoever wants to, let him take the water of life free of charge. Now, if it was built that way, that means that even now, that city is accessible. It is welcoming sinners to repent, come back, come into the kingdom of God, embrace Jesus, find salvation in him. So it can be your home just as surely as it will be my home. The 12 foundations may seem like overkill uh, until you see how tall the city is and how tall the, the wall is. Now, it's true, in verses 14 and 19, it says that they are foundations of the wall But you study this more and you realize the wall is part with the city and the foundations go all the way under the city, from the wall all the way under. And this is confirmed by Hebrews 11.10, which speaks of the whole city as having foundations, plural, that can only be made by God. Now, while the foundations obviously symbolize God's revelation, and we looked at that uh, previously, the literal foundations also show this is a firm city that cannot be shaken. After Hebrews 12 describes the heavenly Jerusalem, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So he's saying what we are going to in heaven ought to direct the way that we live right now it ought to give us boldness and courage and security yes but it ought to give us reverence for god it ought to give us awe at what he has created for us and so uh, just as we can never lose our salvation in eternity we can never lose the benefits of salvation such as this fantastic abode it is secure and commentators point out that the Ancients considered a cube to be a symbol not only of stability, but also of perfection. And we saw in verses 15 through 16, it was exactly you know, the 12,000 stadia, wide, long, and high. It was shaped like a cube. Now today I want to pick up verse 18 and begin looking at the incredible beauty of this city and what each part of this city symbolized. Verse 18 says, the material of her wall was jasper. Now, jasper can come in many colors. Uh, Usually, it's uh, swirls of green, yellow, black, or fiery red, swirled with yellow, black, and other colors. Very hard stone, and the Mohs scale of hardness is uh, 6.5 to 7 in that range. So if you can imagine the entire wall being psychedelic swirls of very, very dark green, And fiery red and black and yellow and some of these other colors you'll have a little bit of a picture of what this wall uh, looks like according to Revelation 4 verse 3 God's glory looked like Jasper and like Sardius so at least in part the Jasper is symbolizing God's glory uh, and it's multifaceted glory and thus you've got the many colors verse 18 continues and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, if you study any history of the, uh, the, the temple of Herod and the temple of Solomon, you will know that it was clad in gold. And the historians of that time say that when you came up to Jerusalem and you looked at that uh, temple, if the sun was shining on it, the glare was so bright you had to avert your eyes. It was almost like staring directly into the sun. And so it uh, speaks of the divine presence. And actually gold by itself in the Old Testament always was a symbol of the divine, of God. Uh, In the temple, uh, you had furniture uh, representing Jesus, for example. So there's wood on the inside clad with the gold. So it's Christ's humanity and his deity. And so this shows that the whole city is surrounded by and indwelt by God. Being clear as crystal shows absolute purity. God's radiant presence is not just on the inside of the city, but it's on the outside, undergirding it and above it. The bride is united to God, and God is united to the bride. This is perhaps one of the most outstanding features of the city. You could not go anywhere in that city without seeing divinity. The divine is completely everywhere in that city. Verse 19 goes on. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation had jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Now there is debate on whether those stones are embedded into the foundation as decoration or whether the entire foundation is made of those gems I tend to favor the second view but there's good arguments on both sides in the commentaries but either way it is going to or it already has taken God's creative power to make this because these are not gems that are mined from the earth I doubt there's enough gems in the earth to make 1.4 trillion acres That's how many acres is on each floor. 1.4 trillion acres of jasper on the first floor, or the first, not floor, but foundation. And then 1.4 trillion of sapphire in the next one, and and on up. And the fact that it's already in existence in heaven, again, shows it's not mined from the earth. These are things that God created, and according to Hebrews 11, only He could create it. It's a city whose builder and maker is God. Now, one of the fascinating things about these gemstones that you will not find in the commentaries, but uh, the more I've researched it, the more I've been intrigued by this, These, every one of these stones is anisotropic. It's an anisotropic gem as opposed to an isotropic gem. Now, the difference between the two, isotropic gems like diamonds and rubies and uh, garnets, will lose all of their color when you, uh, when you shine a cross-polarized light upon them. They turn like coal black. Whereas the anisotropic gemstones are just brilliant. They just have all of the, the colors of the rainbow that radiate uh, out of them. Uh, I've watched videos of them shining these lights on a diamond. It's like, whoa, that is weird. It turns black, and all of these just glow Uh, with the light and um, you can use a polariscope to detect what kind of a gemstone you have and the polariscope can also be used that people make fake gemstones so you can tell right away Oh, this is a fake uh, Jasper or a fake uh, you know whatever the other gem might be just by shining that that light uh, upon them and so God chose the perfect gemstones to dazzle the senses. Of the 28 stones that are normally considered to be the precious gemstones, there's other minerals that are anisotropic, but of the 28 stones normally regarded as gemstones, only 16 are anisotropic, and 12 of those 16 are listed here. Now, I doubt very much And uh, the, the people that I've read, the scientists that I've read have said it's only in recent years that they've even been able to distinguish these two. So in the first century, they had no way of being able to tell the difference between anisotropic or isotropic stones. But God knew. God knew exactly uh, what kind of stone, and this is only a hypothesis, but it may be that God wanted no stones. I would have thought, you know, diamonds would have been cool to have there, and God said, no, diamonds are not going to have color with the kind of light that's shining there. And again, I can't guarantee you the same kind of light's going to be in heaven as shines out of its pure light, directional light that comes out of the polariscope but my theory is that god picked the perfect stones to be able to radiate with rainbow colors in his presence and his light that's my theory so you can think of these stones as stones of light color and glory now many modern commentators believe that these 12 stones are also identical to the 12 stones of the breastplate of the high priest in the old testament i've given you a kind of a a a picture or portrait of what that might look like each of those stones in the Old Testament had the name of one of the sons of Jacob on it, so it was the, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was worn by the high priest over the heart. He went into the Holy of Holies, bearing the names of Israel with him as a, their representative into the Holy of Holies. So it's significant that the names of those 12 patriarchs are at least connected with the gates of this wall, Okay? Though there is debate on the meaning of some of the Hebrew terms in the Old Testament, it's interesting that when the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, that's the Septuagint, nine of the terms that they translated are identical to nine of the gemstones that are listed here. And many of the best commentators believe there is a one-to-one parallel between those twelve in the Old Testament, these twelve, that are here. Well, if that's the case, then this may be communicating four things symbolically. First, since the same stones that were identified with the twelve patriarchs are also used on each foundation with an apostle's name on it, that may be yet another symbol of the unity of the church from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The gates symbolize the fact that the church is the Israel of God and there is no getting into the church without being identified with Israel. You know, Romans chapter 11 likens us to an olive tree, and it says, okay, some of the natural, not all, but some of the natural branches were broken off, and then Gentiles are unnatural branches that are grafted back into Israel. But you go through the gates of the patriarchs, you stand on the foundations of the apostles. It's just beautiful imagery of the church being Israel. Okay, the spiritual Israel. Luke 22, verse 30 says that the 12 apostles would soon rule with him over the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, uh, another reference to that fact. Second, since the high priest's breastplate in the Old Testament represented Jesus wearing Israel upon his heart, it symbolized five things that may be similarly symbolized here. It symbolized nearness. Well, we definitely have nearness to God in the city, don't we? Second, it symbolized remembrance. Well, we saw last week that God remembers every one of His elect. Not one of them is lost. Third, it symbolizes affection. Well, what better imagery of affection can you have than a groom and his bride? Fourth, in the Old Testament, it symbolized representation. Well, Jesus represents us to the Father. And then fifth, it represented communication. And there's constant communication going between the Father and His people in the city, so there are many that believe that the stones symbolize exactly the same things they symbolized in the Old Testament. Now, I think in, in the outline I put names uh, of the apostles with each stone. That's just one person's theory. I cannot guarantee which stones line up, but it does seem that each stone represents one apostle, and in the Old Testament, each stone represents one of the uh, patriarchs. And so I didn't have enough time to narrow it down uh, clearly in my mind, but there seems to be some something that's going on there. Okay, third, since the breastplate of the high priest was used for divine guidance, they would go to the high priest. I don't know if there was a light that would shine through those or what happened, but there was clear guidance that was given through the breastplate. I think it is significant that now those same stones in the 12 foundations we saw last week represent God's what? His revelation, His guidance in the Word of God. According to Ephesians 2, which identifies the foundations as being the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, these stones continue to speak of God's revelation to His people. All inspired revelation we saw ended in AD 70 when the city was finished, And you don't keep laying foundations. And thus it is appropriate for the apostles' names to be on those foundations. They're the last of the prophets. They're the last of the ones who brought uh, inspired revelation. Now according to Ephesians 2, uh, the revelation of the apostles and prophets finished. Uh, We now have the foundational revelation of the Bible. Now, that happened in history, but God's Word endures forever. We had some discussion afterwards, and I was, I was questioning back and forth. Since, since every memory of sin is erased, people said, well, there's a lot of references to sin in the Bible. So are we going to have the Bible for all of eternity? And uh, I can't guarantee the form in which the Word will go, but 1 Peter 1.23 speaks of the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. So there you have it. Okay, fourth thing is since Ezekiel twenty-eight, thirteen shows these same stones to be in the Garden of Eden, uh, many commentators believe that the reference to these stones is yet another indication that this is paradise restored. You've got paradise lost in, in Genesis. You have paradise restored in the book of Revelation, and that symbolism is especially going to be emphasized in the next sermon, Revelation 22, where you've got the tree of life. Right From the garden, you have the tree of life now restored. You've got this river that flows out of Eden. In Genesis, now you've got this river that flows. You've got a mountain there, a mountain plateau, with rivers coming out in four directions. Here you've got, many people believe, this cube is like a mountain, with God's river flowing out and watering the earth. So uh, anyway, there's a symbolism. But even apart from the symbolism, don't you agree, this would have been a fabulous city to stare at. To look at. I mean, you could be staring at it for a long time, and as you walk down the, 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 the walls of the city, you're going to still see all kinds of different patterns and all kinds of different cool things. It would have been spectacular. Verse 21 says, and the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was composed of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, pearls were considered to be extremely precious in the ancient world, much more precious than gold. Now, that's not true today, but pearls were extremely precious in the uh, uh, first century and earlier. In fact, uh, Jesus' parable, remember the parable of the um, precious pearl? The guy was walking through a field and he sees this incredibly expensive pearl. And so he goes, and he saves up money, and he buys the field from this guy so that he can lawfully take that pearl of great price. That symbolizes the gospel, right? And uh, to have a pearl big enough to serve as a gate on this huge city boggles the mind. Reasoner says, "...the pearl is the only jewel produced by suffering and pain, and these gates of pearl symbolize the fact that the entrance to heaven is through suffering." But since each gate was identified with a patriarch, again, it shows the gospel has been true everywhere. The gospel did not start in the New Testament. It started in Genesis 3, verse 15. As you immerse yourself in the imagery of the Bible, you realize it's hard to put these things even into words. Sometimes I think that maxim is true. A picture is worth a thousand words. It gives you a feel. Uh, of a glimpse, as it were, of what God has in store for us. But that's all it is. It's a glimpse. Verse 21 goes on to say, And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And again, because gold in our corruptible world is not transparent, this is likely referring to glorified gold. But it is gold. It's called gold. It's precious. And yet what we consider to be precious is so common in heaven, they can even pave the streets with it. Now, commentators are differed on what the Greek means on this street. There are some who say this is a plaza, this is the big courtyard. Others say, no, this is the main street, but the other streets are not. And then there's others who say, no, the Greek is quite clear, it's all the streets of the city are paved. I'm not going to even settle that debate for you today, but... um, There really are good arguments for each of them, but I think it illustrates that the builder and the maker of this city is fabulously wealthy, fabulously generous, and has miraculous building powers. Now, since gold is a symbol of divinity, it points once again to the fact that God's presence pervades the city. You cannot even walk on the street without metaphorically walking under God, God surrounding you, walking on God. God himself directs our steps. Our steps are ordered by the Lord. Verse 22 goes on to show that the city has no temple. Verse 22 says, "'I saw no sanctuary in her, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are her sanctuary.'" and since God will constantly be with them and will never leave his presence um, or her presence, uh, the the whole city, in in effect, is a, a temple. In Revelation 3, verse 12, Christ said this, The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never again go out. So if God is the temple, and the believers are pillars in the temple, then it speaks of incredible closeness that we have. In Revelation 7:15, it says, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary and he who sits on the throne will shelter him. Now the logical conclusion that commentators have drawn from this is, okay, we, we don't know how much literal, how much symbolical, you know, where to take that on the literal level But they have said that the whole city acts as a kind of temple since God's presence permeates everything. And every member is a metaphorical pillar. Austin Farrer says, Their city of residence is their temple. It contains within it no temple whose walls or doors intervene between them and the God they adore. God is temple to the city, and the city is temple to God. And I think that about summarizes I think that last sentence is great. Uh, God is temple to the city, and the city is temple to God. But if God, by His glory cloud, indwells that city, then that city is going to be full of light. Verses 23 through 24. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon, that they should shine on her, because the very glory of God illumines her, and the Lamb is her light, and the nations walk in her light. Now, you'd have to have some lighting system and that gigantic cube, but God opted for His own direct light. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 60. Let me read from Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Jehovah has risen upon you, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But Jehovah will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But Jehovah will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For Jehovah will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. This is what you're going to be experiencing the moment you get to heaven. But if this light that shines in the new Jerusalem glorifies God for all of eternity there is a sense in which we can glorify god by allowing his metaphorical light to shine through us right now matthew 5 16 says let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven really all that should always be our goal to have god's grace so characterize everything we do before the world that they see god's glory they see god's glory in our works Now, four verses indicate that this is also an international city. I love this. I'm just going to look at one verse. Verse 24, I think, makes it very explicit. It says, And the nations will walk in her light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into her. And earlier in Revelation, he made it quite clear, all nations, without exception, uh, would be in the New Jerusalem. Revelation 7, 9 says, It will be a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. Revelation 15, 4, For all nations shall come and worship before you. So if there is an international city par excellence, this one would be it. And I think it's great if local churches can in some degree reflect the glory of heaven by having an international presence within the local congregation. I think it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. Now when we had um, international ministries, we had a lot more colors and languages and foods that were brought to the food table here. Uh, But I glory in the diversity that God has brought into the bride of Christ. Now, some people wonder what we're going to do in heaven. Is it going to be boring? You know, some people think, really? For all of eternity, you're going to be strumming harps and singing? Uh, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think we will enjoy singing. We will enjoy playing harps or whatever he gives to us. Probably with me, it won't even be a tambourine. I'm just uh, percussively not there. But, uh, uh, and I value it, but I just can't do it right. I'm always clapping on the offbeat, or the, right, the onbeat instead of the offbeat. But uh, there is going to be, um, I think... Um, Uh, a lot of activity that goes beyond that. I think the worship that we enjoy and we're going to be thrilled with is going to be interspersed with long periods of dominion-taking activity. Verse 25, for example, says, Her gates will absolutely not be closed by day, and no night will exist there. And we saw last week, it's just a hint, that people are going to be coming out and coming in. They're going to be taking dominion over the whole world and probably other planets as well, who knows. Verse 26 says, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into her. So there's something coming from outside into those gates. And there is a God-centered focus in everything that people tend to glory in. It'll be brought before the throne of God. It's going to be like, Lord, i love to serve you. Here's some more things that I've done for you. Uh, It's going to be doing our hearts good to be able to serve the Lord. So what are some of the things that the nations glory in right now And that bring great honor to those nations well ethnic groups glory in their skin color their food their culture their accomplishments but unfortunately because of sin there tends to be a self focus in that glorying rather than a God focus so Jeremiah 9 verse 23 says that the wise should quit glorying in his wisdom the mighty should quit glorying in his might the rich should quit glorying in his riches but not entirely to quit glorying, it's the focus. He goes on to say, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yehovah, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says Jehovah. The point is that all of the things that people have this tendency to have self-glory in are now still a glory but there are a glory that's going to be brought before the Lord to serve Him. Every legitimate culture is going to have some beauty and glory that God's going to redeem, He's going to glorify, it'll be brought into the new Jerusalem. But every culture has some demonic things that are going to have to be cleansed and washed away as well. So you can't just say, hey, it's cultural, let's accept it. You have to always analyze what's demonic, what is of God and His common grace. We glory in our dominion, but we tend to glory in it in a self-centered way. Chapter 22, verse three reverses that when it says, his servants shall serve him. Throughout eternity, we're gonna be making new discoveries, taking dominion, inventing things in a myriad ways, reflecting God's creative powers. But it'll be done in joyful service to him. So this verse indicates that on the first day of um, eternity, All of the splendor and the glory of the nations over the whole course of history will have come into the new Jerusalem and will continue to come throughout eternity into that city. In his book on heaven, Cornelius Venema says, it has been plausibly suggested that it, and he's referring to Revelation 21-24, that it describes the way the new creation will receive all the appropriate fruits of human culture and development that have been produced throughout the course of history every legitimate and excellent fruit of human culture will be carried into and contribute to the splendor of life in the new creation rather than the new creation being a radically new beginning in which the excellent and noble fruits of humankind's fulfillment of the cultural mandate are wholly discarded the new creation will benefit from and be immensely enriched by its receiving of these fruits Far from being an empty and desolate place, the new creation will be enriched with the sanctified fruits of human culture. Nothing of the diversity of the nations and peoples, their cultural products, languages, arts, science, literature, and technology, so far as these are good and excellent, will be lost upon life in the new creation. Life in the new creation will not be a starting over but a perfected continuation of the new humanity's stewardship of all of life in the service of God. So that means that everything you do in the power of the Holy Spirit is gonna last for eternity. The things you do in the flesh are not going to get it into eternity. And this means that the dominion mandate that was given to Adam in Genesis chapter one is not going to be abolished. It will finally be lived out in its fullest perfection because the curse will be removed The things we struggle to do right now, we're going to be doing with joy. It's going to be sheer delight to engage in those things in heaven. Anthony Hoikema, in his book on heaven, says, The possibilities that now rise before us boggle the mind. Will there be better Beethoven on the new earth, as one author has suggested? Shall we then see better Rembrandts, better Raphaels, better constables? Shall we read better poetry, better drama, and better prose? Will scientists continue to advance in technological achievement? Will geologists continue to dig out the treasures of the earth? And will architects continue to build imposing and attractive structures? Will there be exciting new adventures in space travel? Shall we perhaps be able to explore new Perilandras? We do not know, but we do know that human dominion over nature will then be perfect. Our culture will glorify God in ways that surpass our most fantastic dreams. So... He points out that people's gifts and their talents, along with some things that they've laid out as treasures in heaven, but their gifts and talents are going to get into heaven. Now, last week at the Tyler's, we were joking that uh, Dr. Shepard is going to be unemployed because there won't be any eye clinics. (laughs) No, he won't be unemployed. But uh, praise God, the things that he delights to do, he's going to do with even greater joy in heaven. That's the kind of idea that goes on. And maybe we're going to be given new delights and new adventures to be involved in that we've never tried uh, here on earth. Uh, Now, this mentions that nations will be in heaven. And so the cultural contribution of various ethnic groups will no longer compete. Instead, they're going to be serving each other. They're going to be serving God in creative ways. Now, there is one thing I disagree with the Venema quote earlier. He says that languages are going to make it into heaven, and I don't think so. I think languages were a part of the curse that God brought at the Tower of Babel, and that uh, that's going to be completely reversed on the first day of history. And I have a scripture I believe backs that up. You can Challenge it if you want. I'm not dogmatic on this, but I think Zephaniah 3, verse 9 clearly indicates this. It says, For then I will restore to the peoples, plural, so there's multiple peoples or nations, I will restore to the peoples, plural, a pure language, singular, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. So that verse indicates God's going to give all of the nations, plural, one language, singular, and it's going to be a purified language. There won't be any cuss words and stuff like that in that uh, purified language. But he's going to give them one language so that they can worship him unitedly. In other words, as he words it there, with one accord. Now, can you imagine... Trillions of voices in a worship service belting out brand new hymns that have been composed. I mean, I think it would make every one of us melt in tears of joy. It's one of the things that makes me look forward uh, to heaven as being an incredibly, incredibly glorious place. These are just tiny glimpses that we have of some of the ideas of the wonders, of the glories that God has in store for us. He wants us to think they're cool. He wants us to anticipate them. And verses 26 through 27 indicates that this is going to be a holy city 100% entirely devoted to God. Now, if it drives you crazy that you keep falling into sin, cheer up. There is coming a day when you will be completely freed from every sinful motive, thought, word, and deed. Systematic theology, you'll have to study it on your own, but systematic theology guarantees it will be impossible for you to sin in heaven. Some people wonder, you know, maybe I'll sin and fall out of heaven. No, it will be impossible. You will be confirmed in righteousness, and it will be impossible to sin. Verse 27 says... But anything common or anyone perpetrating an abomination or a lie will absolutely not enter her. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we're going to be finally freed from every vestige of evil. I mean, hallelujah, this is something I look forward to. It is grievous to be going along thinking you're sanctified and then you blow it with a wrong thought or something like that. But we are going to be freed from every vestige of sin in heaven. Now to those who are unregenerate, this may not seem very fun, but to those of us who have tasted the sweetness of salvation, who have tasted the sweetness of fellowship with God, this is something that's a magnetic pull, this upward call to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's a magnetic pull upon our lives that energizes us, that encourages us, that gives us joy and satisfaction. Paul was actually torn between anticipation of heaven and the glories and the joys that will be experienced there and the continued joy of serving Christ on earth. He was torn. Which one do I want? I mean, I want to continue to serve the Lord here, but I want to go to heaven. He's torn. Here's what he said. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So this joy that we experience as God's grace is, is made perfect in our weakness is something that sustains us now, but he's saying heaven's going to be far more joyful. It's going to be far more glorious than anything that we've even tasted here on earth. So the end of your life is not something to dread. The end of your life is the beginning of the most glorious thing that you could ever imagine. And this is why the Bible says the moment you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you become justified Christian, you have eternal life. You're not waiting for eternal life. You have it right now. And when you die physically, you're not actually dying. You're continuing to live, but only on a higher level of living than you have ever lived before. So look forward to heaven. Thank God for heaven. Realign your life to the reality of heaven and act as those who are headed to this glorious place. Amen. Father, we thank you for heaven. It just boggles our mind to think of how generous you have been to us. We are so undeserving, undeserving of anything, and yet you overflow and keep overflowing. There is no selfishness in you. You give and give and give out of the overflow of your heart. And, Father, we desire that our lives would conform to this generosity that we see in you. Please help us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to have more and more of the savor of Christ about us, to have more and more of the New Jerusalem about us, where the people gladly serve you. It's their joy to serve you, and you gladly serve them. Father, help us to get outside of the things that hold us down and to find this joy indescribable and full of glory that flows from your throne. We love you. We bless you. It is our great privilege to serve you and to worship you. And I pray the remainder of this Sabbath we would find great delight in even this day off that you have given to us in which we can focus on you and focus on each other and have true Sabbath conversations. Father, may you be blessed with the things that we discussed this afternoon. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.